I'm going to invite you to find 1 Kings chapter 19. 1 Kings 19 in your Bible. We're in the Old Testament this morning. Last week, we let uh, James speak into our lives regarding dealing with difficult circumstances uh, from the New Testament. We're going to go back to the Old Testament this morning and let Elijah in his uh, interaction with God teach us a little bit about uh, the same subject, how to deal with difficult circumstances in life. Um, We're going to turn our attention next Sunday to the subject of what it means to live in community with each other. And we're going to spend two Sundays talking about that together uh, during the preaching time as we also, along with that, introduce to the church or reintroduce community groups that you can get involved in, either by leading or participating. So all that's coming beginning next Sunday, Lord willing. Uh, But today our spiritual food is from 1 Kings 19, Elijah at the cave and his interaction with God. Okay, now I'm going to read 18 verses, so much longer um, than typical. I'm going to read verses 1 through 18 of chapter 19. And I want to invite you to remain seated this morning uh, for the reading of the word. And um, we're not going to rush through it. We're just going to enjoy it. And then we'll, we'll pray, and then we'll talk about it. Okay? This is what we find First 1 Kings chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So we've got to go back just one chapter in our minds and think about the context of what's going on here. This follows right on the heels of the great demonstration at Mount Carmel where Elijah had challenged the prophets of Baal to a contest to see which God would answer by fire. And the prophets of Baal lost, and Elijah won. The God of Israel answered with fire. And the next thing that happened is that all the prophets of Baal were killed by the sword of Elijah. So that's what it means when we read, he killed all the prophets with the sword. The prophets that Ahab and Jezebel really liked, they're dead. Verse 2, then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die saying, It is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left. And they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel, Mahola, you shall appoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Heavenly Father, we pray for those who are sick and not able to be with us today. Maybe they were able to be with us online, and boy, they wish they could be part of the fellowship today in this, in this room, and we pray for them, and we pray for healing and restoration. We pray for those who are just down. We pray for those for whom life is very hard. We pray for those for whom there is a relationship right now that's really hard. We pray for those getting to release someone that they love very much and to go off to a a far place where they won't see them as often. We pray for those who are praying fervently for someone to come to know Christ and watching things happen in their lives that are very hard. And we pray that there would be perseverance in prayer and that there would be faith. We pray for ourselves. I'm, I'm so thankful, Father, that your son Jesus is the perfect shepherd of this congregation, that he is the shepherd that knows every need here, knows about needs that I do not know about, and that he, being the shepherd, desires to lead people in the direction they should go and to meet the needs that only he knows about. So I pray that you would be our great 
need meter this morning. Satisfy people with your goodness through the testimony of your word and this interaction that you had with Elijah so long ago that still nourishes us today. So we we commit all these things to you, so many things, so many hearts, so many needs. We lay them all before you, knowing that it's not a big thing for you, that you desire uh, to help and feed your people with good things. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. The thing that we have to know about Elijah at the point at which we find him here is that he is a man with a burden, a huge burden. That was obvious to you as we were doing the reading. What's the nature of the burden that he has? Well, it's multifaceted, isn't it? It's not just one thing that he's dealing with. Think about all the things that Elijah is dealing with at this point where we meet him. First of all, he's exhausted. He's physically exhausted. He just killed 450 men. And he's running for his life. He's on a a journey. He's on the run because he's had a death threat. So not only physically exhausted, but mentally and spiritually exhausted. Okay, he's exhausted. Also, that, that's part of his burden. Secondly, he also, he's afraid, isn't he? He's got this overwhelming fear. We're told that explicitly in verse 3. Then he was afraid. He's carrying a burden of fear along with exhaustion. Not only those two things, exhaust, exhaustion and fear, he's also alone. Now, he's alone by his own decision. He left his servant behind. He's physically alone. He's out by himself. He's also spiritually alone, isn't he? He thinks he's the only holdout for the God of Israel. He thinks he's the only one who is being faithful. He's carrying the banner by himself. So he's exhausted, he's afraid, he's alone. That's pretty bad, isn't it? That combination of all those things is pretty bad. But as if that wasn't enough, there's also this. Not only is he exhausted and afraid and alone, he's deeply disappointed. Probably a better word is that he's disillusioned. Why is he disappointed? Probably Elijah expected, okay, let's try to get into his mind a little bit here. Probably he expected that following the great and undeniable demonstration on Mount Carmel, that the God that he serves, the God of Israel, really is the one true God, okay? That just happened. Everyone saw it happen right in front of their eyes. God demonstrated for sure in front of everyone that he is God. Probably Elijah's expectation is that following that, following that happening on Mount Carmel, there would be a great national 
turning back to God. Of course there would be. God definitively demonstrated by a supernatural act that he is the one true God. So Elijah had every expectation that his ministry would be a success. And maybe even that everyone would rush back and dethrone and overthrow this wicked king and queen and that righteousness would be restored. That there would be a great revival in Israel, finally, And nothing of that kind happens. There's this great demonstration of God. It was so obvious and overwhelming, yet Elijah is the one who's on the run, who's running for his life, not the wicked king and queen. They're not running for their lives. Elijah is running for his life. How does that happen? How can that possibly be? Here's our man Elijah, the burdened one. He's exhausted, he's afraid, he's alone, and he's so disappointed. And are you able to identify? Maybe you don't check all those boxes right now. Maybe, I I hope you're not all those things, but maybe you at least check one of those. Exhausted, afraid, alone, disappointed, maybe even very, very disappointed. Here's the question we're tracking down today. Who is God to us in those moments? What's going to happen here to Elijah, this man who is carrying this huge burden? What's going to happen here to him when God meets him? Who will God be to him? What do, what do we learn about the God that we worship and how he deals with us when we are at that point in life? I think it's true that great burdens in our lives are the stage for great revelations. Great burdens in our lives are great or the stage for God's great revelation of who he is. We do learn so much more about God when we are in pain than when we are going through times of ease. And what we see happen here in 1 Kings 19 is a great revelation of God to a man who's carrying a great burden. Elijah does have a great burden in this chapter, but he also has a great privilege because God shows him who he is at just that moment. Elijah learns at least three things about God at the cave, probably many, many more. We're gonna narrow our scope to just these three things that he learns about God at the cave, and we can learn along with him, okay? Who is God to us in these moments where we're carrying this huge burden? The first thing Elijah learns, this is verses one through eight, very beginning of the passage, is that God cares for him personally. The first thing Elijah learns about his God in these moments is that God cares for him personally. God, through the mediation of an angel, finds Elijah, 
meets him out there in the wilderness. That's what happens in verse 5. There is a, a coming together of Elijah and the angel of the Lord. God and Elijah are meeting. Now, what do we expect to happen when these two parties meet? You know your Bibles really well, okay? What's going to happen when God meets a prophet who's on the run? Well, one thing we might expect is a lecture or a lesson. We might expect that because we've read the book of Jonah. We know what happens whenever a prophet goes on the run, that God will meet them and provide a little object lesson for them and educate them in the way that things are. Maybe, maybe Elijah out here in the wilderness is going to get a little object lesson like Jonah got. Remember the castor oil plant that grows up and he's really happy about it and then it dies and he's unhappy. Maybe God's going to do something like that. Elijah's depressed because there wasn't a revival. Jonah was depressed because there was a revival. That's just how we are. That's our human nature. How's God going to deal with people like that? Well, maybe he's going to treat Elijah like he treated Jonah, and he's going to try to teach him something. Maybe, we'll, maybe we'd expect to see a pep talk. You know, God will... Come to him in something like Joshua got. Be strong and courageous. Maybe that's what he needs right now. He needs someone to come and just appeal to his manhood and say, Be strong and courageous, Elijah. That could happen. Maybe he'll get a rebuke. Something like the 12 disciples received from Jesus whenever they were so afraid out on the water, in the storm. Hey, where is your faith? Why are you so afraid? We read here that Elijah's afraid. Maybe God will come to him and say, why are you so afraid? Where's your faith, Elijah? Don't you know that I've always taken care of you? Remember when I fed you with the ravens? I think we could realistically expect any of those things to happen when these two parties meet up in the wilderness based on how we see God interact with people at other times. But Elijah doesn't get a lecture and he doesn't get a pep talk. He doesn't get a rebuke. What does he get instead? He gets a bed and a meal. He gets food and he gets rest. When God meets him, it is to provide food and rest. God cares for his physical needs. That's what happens. You know, we come into this building on Sunday mornings or we meet together online, if if that's the way that you can get here. We come on the lookout for reasons that we can rejoice in God and praise God and reasons to give thanks Reasons to say thank you to God. Have you ever thought about this one? And here's one for today. Here's a reason today to give thanks to God that maybe we have not appreciated before. 
that the God who is is the kind of God who responds to our heavy burdens with a bed and a meal. He is a compassionate, feeling God who knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. He knows us better than we know ourselves. And he doesn't answer Elijah's prayer by taking his life away. He knows what he needs is a bed and a meal. This man needs some cake. That's what he needs. And he needs some water. We see the character of God on display here in verses 1 through 8 in that God cares for Elijah personally. Is there any other person in the scriptures you can think of that God treats so tenderly as he treats Elijah here in 1 Kings 19? Now, some of you may be thinking that we're taking it way too easy on Elijah. There are commentators who say that this is not a good thing that he's doing here. There are lots of commentators who believe that, that this is a a faithless thing for Elijah to be out here in the wilderness, like Jonah going the opposite direction, abandoning his posts. So you may be thinking we need to be a little harder on Elijah and not coddle him so much. Maybe, maybe that is your interpretation, that he's doing the wrong thing. But let me just give you my point of view and submit this to you. I don't think so. I think there are indications here that Elijah is right where God wants him to be. Notice in verse 7 that the angel doesn't say to him, this journey is wrong for you. Turn around, Elijah. You're running the, the wrong way. You're running away. Don't do that. He doesn't say this journey is wrong for you. He says this journey is too great for you. Therefore, arise and eat so you can keep going the direction you're going. Arise and eat this food and get some rest so you can keep going. I think Elijah is in the will of God here. God wants to show him something. In 1 Kings 18, the the previous chapter, God makes a great demonstration to the whole nation. And in 1 Kings 19, God desires to make a great demonstration to just Elijah of what he is like. This is a revelation just for him. And I believe it is a greater demonstration than the demonstration on Mount Carmel. Because we see not just an act of God, but the character of God. Just as the cross is a a greater demonstration than the feeding of the 5,000 and the turning of water into wine. The cross is a greater demonstration than either of those things because we see the character of God there. It's not just a supernatural act where something amazing happens, something that shouldn't happen does happen. 
And that's what happened on Mount Carmel. Something happened supernaturally that should never happen, but it happens anyway. But what we find in 1 Kings 19 with just Elijah is a greater demonstration than that because God's character is revealed. Elijah gets to make a journey and gets to know him. It's the best thing any human could hope for. Probably Elijah's in the same spot where Moses was when he asked God to show him his glory. We talked about that a few months ago. Elijah is learning about God, and the first thing he learns is that God cares for him personally. You may have fallen into this way of thinking. I fall into this all the time myself, the way of thinking that says God's main concern is really what I can do for him. That's really my value, is what I can do for God. Let's make sure that we understand that God is not mostly interested in what a person can do for him. Let's not forget that God doesn't need any of us to accomplish his purposes. (laughs) God could have let Elijah go his own way, and God could have gone off and found Elisha all by himself and commissioned Elisha. He didn't need Elijah to do that. He pursued Elijah into the wilderness, not because it was the fastest route to future fruitfulness in Israel. He pursues Elijah into the wilderness because he loves him, because he cares for him, because Elijah is dear to him. This relationship between God and Elijah is not all about what Elijah can do for God. God doesn't need him. He loves him. So rest in this truth, Christian, that God cares for you and wants to show you his goodness. That's one thing that we learn along with Elijah. God cares for him personally. Second thing that Elijah learns is that not only does God care for him personally, God is at work quietly. God is at work quietly. That's, that's what we learn in the middle part of this passage, verses 9 through 14. It's probably the most famous part of the passage. Probably also the hardest to interpret and figure out what's going on with the fire and the wind and the earthquake and the whisper and what does all this mean. Well, the the first key to understanding what all this means is to remember the context. What's the context? Elijah is describing how bad the situation is for God and for him. Elijah is describing how bad the situation is for God and for him. That's verse 10. He's saying how bad the situation is for God. God, listen to this. Notice how bad the situation is for you. People have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets. That's really, really bad for God in Israel. That's total rejection. 
Situation's bad for God. Also, the situation is really bad for Elijah. I, even I only, am left, and they seek to take my life away. Okay, that's the context for this revelation. Elijah's just stating how bad things are for God and for him. So God is responding to that statement. And he responds in a very mysterious way. First, there are these three great and obvious demonstrations of power. Great and obvious things for Elijah to see. The wind, with all of the havoc that it causes. And then there's the earthquake. And then there's the fire. Great and obvious things. But each time it's carefully noted that the Lord was not in the wind, in the earthquake. In the fire. God was not present in the great and obvious demonstrations. Rather, verse 12, after the fire, the sound of a low whisper, what the King James Version calls a still small voice or a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave and behold, there came a voice to him. So it is implied that the Lord was in the low whisper. After the wind, the earthquake, the fire, we're told that the Lord was not in them This time, we're not told that. The low whisper comes, and then it is the Lord that speaks. Implication is that the Lord is in the low whisper. What does that mean? What does Elijah learn about God? God is showing Elijah, who is so distraught over how bad things are, by all the bad things that he's seeing, all the bad signs, so distraught by those things. He can't see anything good happening. It's all bad. God is showing him, I am at work in quiet and invisible ways. Just because you don't see a great, obvious, wonderful work happening in Israel, Elijah, that does not mean that I am not at work. I am at work in the quiet and invisible movements of my spirit. Remember that what Elijah had hoped to see were the great and obvious things, like the king and queen being drug out and executed. And all these people rejoicing in the Lord publicly, altars of Baal torn down, weeping, repentance, righteousness. He doesn't see any of those things that he wanted to see happening around him in his nation. But what he finds out is that God has been at work in small 
quiet, invisible ways. Elijah didn't know that there were 7,000 people that God had reserved for himself. Elijah thought he was alone, but he was wrong. God had been at work in the hearts of people, but the work was quiet and invisible. And God still works in the same ways today. You know, even in the resurrection of Jesus, that great, that great and overwhelming demonstration of God's power, and that Jesus really is who he said he was, even the resurrection of Jesus, that great and overwhelming demonstration that we read about in the New Testament, even that did not achieve in Israel a national turning to God through Jesus. Even that didn't do it. Just as the Mount Carmel demonstration did not result in a great turning back to God. No, that wasn't the way it happened. No, it was and still is the Spirit of God. It was in the Holy Spirit coming and quietly convicting the Christians, the very first ones to hear the sermon, the sermon of Peter on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God doing his mysterious, invisible, quiet, sovereign work on people. That's how we see the power of God demonstrated. And only God knows the number of those people who belong to him. God works quietly and invisibly and sovereignly. And that can be really hard, can't it? Because we don't see it. And we don't know. And maybe, maybe you were disappointed today in what you have not seen from God. Maybe part of the burden that you are carrying is that things look really bad for you. Or maybe your burden, part of your burden, is that things look really bad for God as you survey the landscape. Maybe you're tempted toward disappointment and disillusionment, not so much because of your personal prospects, but because of God's prospects, the prospects of the church and the people of God. Elijah's so disappointed about those things that he wants to die. Or maybe your burden is very personal. Maybe you are not seeing any movement on a front where you would love to see movement, where you're dying to see God do something. You've been praying a long time and you do not see any change, no shift. You don't see any rocks breaking apart. There's no wind blowing. It seems like nothing is happening at all. Learn the lesson that Elijah learned at the cave, that just because you have not seen anything happening, that does not mean that God is not at work. We have to remember how God works. 
we have to remember that the conception of Jesus was quiet and invisible. We have to remember that when a person is reborn to new life, it happens without fanfare, usually, and maybe no immediate obvious change. So don't be alarmed by what you don't see happening. Probably disappointment and disillusionment with the church has never been higher, at least in my lifetime. Some of you may feel very disappointed, maybe disillusioned by what you see when you look around you. And I just want to remind you that somewhere today, whoever the next great preacher is of the next generation, somewhere today, that person, whoever, whoever that is, is in children's church drinking Kool-Aid. Nobody knows his name. But someone's teaching him. Someone's reaching him. Someone's planting the seeds of desire in his heart for Jesus and his kingdom. We don't know who he is, but he's there. And God is working quietly. Somewhere today, we don't know who she is. We don't know who the, the next wonderful songwriter and singer for the glory of God is that will bring that gift to the church. But she's practicing her instrument in her room because she's getting ready for band this fall. And God's building that gift into her. We don't know her name. God knows her name. And he's doing his work. And it will happen. Somewhere today, God is preparing the heart of the, the spouse or the friend or the health worker, the person you will need eight years from now to keep you afloat and to minister to you and to be your companion. You don't know who they are, but God is working on their heart today, preparing them for that moment when they will meet you. And there are some of you that really need a deliverance of some kind, emotional, spiritual, physical, and you don't see anything happening. God is preparing the means of your deliverance today, and it will come. His work is quiet, and you don't see it. God's still doing that invisible work undetectable. We're learning about who God is along with Elijah at the cave. He cares for us personally. He works quietly. The last thing we learn is that God takes our burdens presently. He takes our burdens presently or in the moment. That's the very last part of the passage where we get all these names thrown at us and we're not quite sure who they are. Verses 15 through 18. We see the burden lifted from Elijah. We're just noticing in this last point that no sooner has Elijah voiced his burden to God than God takes his burden from him. 
The loving Almighty declares relief for weary Elijah. He learns at the end that the cavalry is coming. He's not going to have to carry all these burdens by himself anymore. He has been both God's means of judgment and prophecy. He's done both of those things for God. He's been God's means of judgment. He's the one who slaughtered all those false prophets with his sword. He's not only been judge, but he's been prophet. He's been the one speaking the hard things to the king. And what we learn here is that he who has been the means of God's judgment, who has been bearing the sword, he learns now that Hazael, who's going to be king of Syria, and Jehu, who's going to be king of Israel, that they will bear the sword of God's judgment now. They're going to take up their swords. And he who has been the prophet, now he's to have help in that area too, in the person of the wonderful and loyal Elisha. That judgment and that prophecy that Elijah's been carrying all alone will now be shared by a group of others. It happens here for Elijah. We get no reaction from him to those things. But I think we can feel along with him. Can't you feel the, the relief he must have felt to have that heavy burden lifted from him by those words that there is help. There are others. I don't have to carry this burden alone. What does he learn about God? He learns that God is a person who will take ownership of our burdens. He has a plan. God has a plan for Elijah's burdens. God has a plan for our burdens. He simply asks us to voice them to him. He explicitly asks us to do that, commands us. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your burdens on him for he cares for you. So Elijah gets it out. Here's the problem, God. And God communicates back to him. Here's the plan, Elijah. And I think that is the thing to be emphasized regarding giving our burdens to God, that God has a plan. You know, it, it is a cliche to say it, to say God has a plan, but it really is true. God does have a plan because remember this, all those things, ownership of all those things that Elijah's concerned about, God is responsible for all those things. You know, Elijah says, I'm so jealous for your name, God. No one is more jealous for the name of God than God is. That's his burden. God is jealous for his own name. God is in control of all things. That's part of what it means to be God, that he is in control. And we can trust him with our burdens because ultimately this world belongs to him and our bodies belong to him. And the reputation of his name is ultimately his concern. And the church belongs to him. And the reputation of the church is his concern. And his son belongs to him. And the name of his son, son ultimately belongs to him. It's his concern. And the provision for our families 
How are we going to get what we need? Ultimately, that is his concern because he's promised to provide what we need. And Elijah is so heavily burdened because things are not going like he thinks they should go or he wants them to go, but they're going exactly as God has decreed them to go. Every word, thought, action, response, even Elijah's flight to the cave, exactly what God intended for his benefit and for ours 2,800 years later. God wants him and us to know that he is a God who cares for us personally, who is at work quietly, and who takes our burdens presently. So give your burden to him today. Remember that he is at work quietly. And remember how very much he cares for you, for you. Amen. Father, thank you so much that you're like this. We have no power to make you what we want you to be. We're just so thankful that this is your character and this is who you are. That you care about your people so much. That you take our burdens. And that we can just rest knowing that you are at work and you are in control. What wonderful thoughts for the Lord's day. And we thank you, Father, for your word that's shown us that it's true. Amen.